right. It's a good day to be here. We, uh, we kicked off a new series last Sunday night uh, on looking at the, whole, at the book of 1 Corinthians. Anyone read that one? Okay, this works better if it's a bit of a two-way kind of a thing. Um, I trained as a teacher, and so what I'm actually used to is pacing around the room and talking as I go, and it being a whole lot more interactive between me and the people that I'm actually talking to. So um, so for you to sit there and just sort of look at me with blank faces, it's going to get boring real fast. So our morning church, we've been working on them for four years, and they're a whole lot more vocal now than when we started. You're allowed to like, well, you know, the heckling you know, keep it nice. Um, but we do, it's, it's just great to be able to actually have a bit of like to and fro. And it's kind of more interesting for you, I hope. So, okay, anybody read anything of First Corinthians, the New Testament? Yep, there we go. There's that hands. Woo! There we go. We're away. All right. So for those of you who either weren't here last week or uh, you've forgotten what Matt talked about, which if you weren't here last week, he did a brilliant job of, uh, and I am a little biased, I think he's fabulous, um, but he did do a great job of kind of doing an overview of what was going on in the world when Paul wrote this letter to the church in in Corinth. Okay. So if you have missed it, it would be worth like jumping on and listening to that during the week just so that you kind of catch up and get on. get into the groove of the whole thing. But let me do a very, very quick recap just so that we're all on the same page as we go into this thing. All right, so Corinth was a relatively young uh, city. It was 150 years old. Um, it had actually been, had much more ancient roots than that during ancient, the period of ancient Greece. But the Romans, when they had kind of come through, they got the pit with the Corinthians. And so they actually ab- totally annihilated the city. And then, you know, you get another emperor and he changes his mind because it's the strategic port uh, in Greece. And so they rebuilt it. So by the time that Paul has gone there and he started this baby church, um, it's about 150 years old. So it's this funny combo of it being ancient and new all at the same time. But they were really proud of themselves. It became this thriving merchant city. And you had this kind of melting pot of people that came from all over the known world at that point because it was... Um, this really important port. So all this trade was going on and so it brought all these people and all these ideas and all these religious kind of perspectives and backgrounds into the mix um, which made it really dynamic and interesting and really messy all at the same time. And uh, they estimate that probably the population was anything from 100,000 to 600,000 people which for that period of time when you think about that most of life happened in smaller contexts and villages is actually it's a, it's a large city and it had a lot of power because it, uh, it grew in wealth and so it grew in influence and uh, became this kind of dynamic thing where it was a city that kind of felt like anything could happen because there was lots of people that came and kind of made themselves there. Um, but but it was pretty unruly as well. Any trading port where there's lots of sailors and you know military people moving through, not always tidy. Uh, and there was an English uh, author and clergyman who wrote in the 18, late 1800s and he described Corinth like this, just to give you a bit of an idea what the city was like. So being a relatively recent city with newly acquired wealth brought problems, for there was an absence of an established aristocracy which could have provided a much more stable society. He describes it a little bit more like this, he said, this mongrel and heterogeneous population of Greek adventurers and Roman bourgeois with a tainting influence of Phoenicians 
poor Phoenicians. Apparently they tanked wherever they go. Um, this mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, slaves, tradespeople, hucksters and agents of every vice. Without aristocracy, without traditions, and without well-established citizens meant that it made for an interesting place. All right? So it's not all clean and tidy. It's, it's kind of a bit rough around the edges. But there was a bit of excitement there. And one of the things that, um, that we need to kind of keep in the back of our minds is that uh, Christianity was just, you know, in its infancy, it didn't have any influence. We were, they were living in a world that was dominated by both Roman gods and Greek gods because the Romans actually really liked a lot of Greek uh, philosophy and history and everything. So they adopted a lot of it and brought it into the mix. And there was also these mystery cults that were kind of really popular at the time. And it was all about kind of acquiring the spiritual knowledge that, you know, was only for the elite, really. And it was all, you know, sort of shrouded in secrecy and in mystery. And, it, you know, you had to be a certain kind of person and of a certain class within society to be able to access that. All of that was going on in Corinth. And then Paul arrives at the uh, direction of God. He goes there with the view to, to just telling the story of Jesus and to share the gospel with people there. And so he spent 18 months in Corinth uh, doing that. And the church grew. People were added to their number the whole time. And then 18 months later, he says, right, well, you're on your own. See you later. I'm off. I'm going to go do that somewhere else. So you've got this church full of all these new Christians and led by all these new Christians who really had no idea what they were doing. I mean, can you imagine if we were trying to do that? You know, like it would, and in, in a city where that's the norm of what cultural, you know, our life looked like, it, it got a bit messy. And so three or four years later, Paul is living in Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, and he gets news that things are not going well back in Corinth. And there's stuff that's happening and that the church is allowing to have happen that is just not that helpful. And it certainly isn't uh, representative of what it means to follow Jesus. They'd kind of lost their way a bit and they'd been influenced by the culture that are around them. And, and that happens to us today, doesn't it? Or not? Yes, yes there we go. <laughs> awesome. It does. We can't help but be a bit influenced by the culture we're in, hey? And so that had happened to them, but it was not that helpful. And so he, start, he writes a number of letters and he sends them back to the Corinthian church. And we don't have all of them, but we have two of them in First and Second Corinthians. And, and it's where Paul is bringing encouragement. He's reminding them that he loves them. And because he loves them, he's going to bring some direction and some correction to some of the stuff that's happening there. All right? So that's where we're up to. So, uh, so tonight, we're going to spend just a little bit of time um, looking at how Paul is kind of writing these letters and what he's trying to do is shift their perspective, to give them perspective of what life looks like when it's under the Lordship of Jesus because they kind of just either had no idea or they'd lost it, all right, since he'd left them. And uh, the thing with when, whenever we're trying to teach chunks of scripture is that uh, in, in the next half an hour or so, it's very difficult for me to really, really pull out everything that there is in the three chapters that we're going to look at tonight, which is chapters two to four. Uh, so my encouragement to you is actually to do this at home. Do you want to chuck up that slide, guys? Um, and there's a resource that you can use. Well, actually, there's a bunch of stuff online that you can read about that. Oh, suddenly we get light. 
There we go. So getting perspective. Um, and there's this great book. It's written by a contemporary theologian called N.T. Wright. And he has written commentaries for different parts of Scripture, uh, but he also does some Bible study notes. And um, you, you can get them just online or download it on Kindle. But it's a great way of actually unpacking this for yourself so that you don't miss anything. Because honestly, I'm missing stuff. I have to just sort of pull on a couple of threads and, uh, and trust that the rest of it you'll be able to figure out for yourselves until next time. All right, so one of those threads that we're going to pull on and that we're going to look at a little bit is this whole idea of humility. It's not something we talk about a whole heap, hey? When was the last time you had a conversation with someone about humility? Recently? Probably been a while? Yeah, it's not something we kind of look at, and yet um, Paul This is really big. This is really important because a lack of humility takes us to places that aren't helpful for us. And so uh, Paul, when he came to the Corinthians, he he just sort of told the story of Jesus and taught them in a way that's really plain and really simple because he wanted as many of them as possible to get it. Okay? And uh, and that's kind of what he's done thus far. But that's kind of being, what they're doing is they're comparing him to these uh, teachers that are coming through that are teaching philosophy and all this. And they're actually called, there's a group of them, they're called sophists. And they're part of this whole thing that elevate knowledge. And it's all about that. But they use it for power. And they use it for influence. And, uh, and so Paul's kind of going, you guys, you're chasing after the wrong thing. Because it's taking us in places that aren't good for us. Let's just come back to humility. All right, and let's start there. So this is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 to 9. We, this is him talking about himself and other teachers, have plenty of wisdom to pass on to you once you get your feet on firm spiritual ground, but it's not popular wisdom. The fashionable wisdom of high-priced experts that will be out of date in a year or so. God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes. You don't find it lying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but kind of more like the oldest. What God determined as the way to bring out his best in us long before we ever arrived on the scene. And the experts of our day then, and still today I would say, haven't a clue about the eternal, this eternal plan. If they had, they wouldn't have killed the master of the God-designed life on a cross. What he's saying is all of this popular kind of pursuit of wisdom is kind of taking them in the wrong direction because God's wisdom is not the same as human wisdom. In fact, if we even think about our own culture and and kind of what we uh, value now, we, we are living in the information age, aren't we? It's like we've got like we can just kind of Google anything. If you want to learn how to, you know, one of my daughters is learning how to play the guitar. Well, she's learning with YouTube. You know, if you want to learn how to cook, YouTube. If you want to study the latest uh, research into brain science, just Google it. You know, like we have everything at our fingertips, all this information, all these facts. But what we don't tend to pursue is wisdom. So knowledge is all about information. Wisdom is all about good judgment. It's almost like, you know, learning what to do with knowledge. And so I would say that it is just as true for us today as it was for Paul talking to the Corinthians. Don't get sidetracked by human wisdom. 
pursue, we actually have to intentionally pursue God's wisdom because it's not lying around on the surface. It's not something that's necessarily really obvious to everybody. In fact, he goes on to say, which I won't unpack here because you'll do it when you read it yourself, is like the only way that we can actually really explore the depths of God's wisdom is because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Apart from that, we miss it in and of ourselves. So, super important for us to realise the two are not the same. God's wisdom and human wisdom are not the same thing. And that if we want to grow in God's wisdom, we have to pursue it. We have to be intentional about it. The next thing he talks about in terms of this whole thing of humility is that there's really no place for bragging or for arrogance or for pride. And uh, it's kind of a human thing, isn't it? That we sort of drift into that direction. And it was just as true then. It's kind of like, you know, the more you read history, the more you realise that people are people are people. Like we're just people. And we seem to kind of do very similar things regardless of what era we live in. Uh, and, uh, and this was what was happening, you know. The problem with pride is what does it lead us to? Does it lead us to unity? Usually Not. It leads us to division. It breeds division. And that was exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were so used to playing, you know, in their cultural context, they were used to playing people off against each other. And, and, and it was happening within the church. And they kind of just thought it was normal. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. This is not how we live. This is not how we behave towards one another. Let's look at chapter 3, 18 to 23. Don't fool yourselves. Don't think that you can be wise merely by being up to date with the times. Be God's fool. That's the path to wisdom. What the world calls smart, God calls stupid. I like the way he's quite blunt. You know, there's no missing the point. It's written in scripture. He exposes the chicanery of the sheik. The master sees through the smoke screens of the know-it-alls. I don't want to hear any of you bragging about yourself or anyone else. Everything is already yours as a gift. Paul, Apollos, Peter, the world, life, death, the present, the future, all of it is yours. And you are privileged to be in union with Christ, who is in union with God. Um, I'll talk about why he references those three people, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, in a little while. But he's basically saying, guys, you're setting your sights way too low here. Your pride is making you blind to the fact that God is giving you the vastness of himself. And you're kind of, you know, focusing in and nitpicking and pulling apart based on a personality. You know, the person you like the most, the teaching you like the most. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Have you ever kind of found yourself in a situation or um, you've overheard these kinds of conversations where, you, you know, you'll have someone, <laughs> or it could be yourself, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm part of this church or this youth group or this, you know, kind of group of people. And, uh, you know, we don't say it this bluntly, but we kind of mean it. We are the best. You know, we do know at all, really. You know, and, and, you know, there's this competitive thing that kind of creeps in. It's like, well, we're better than the church down the road. Or our youth group is better than the one, you know, up the hill. Or our way of worshipping is so much better than the one, you know, that they're doing down in Oriwa. Have you ever experienced that, even in your own heart, even if you've never put language to it? Because truth, honestly, I have. But what Paul is saying, there is just no room for that. It's just not okay. There is no competition here. There's no, that's because that's the problem with pride. 
is it leads us to division. It leads us to thinking that we have it all, you know? And there's a certain degree of, um, and it kind of just feeds our pride, really, you know, and self-esteem. And so, and he's telling them, this is a problem because of what it's doing is demonstrating that you're really actually immature. Maturity doesn't, doesn't pursue division. So we need to guard our hearts against that because the problem with arrogance is that it makes us unteachable. We kind of shut down our hearts and our minds to learning anything else. And so no one person, no one church, one, no, no denomination can say, we have it all figured out, guys. Come follow us, you know. We can't. We all are given glimpses of more and more of the kingdom of God. And all of us have a part to play in this big motley family of the church. But none, none of us is better than the other. But it's easy for us to kind of use language like we are, isn't it? And kind of pick holes at the ones down the road. Which Paul's just saying, we just can't do that. And he recognises that this arrogance means that, you know, if we allow that to grow in us, we'll shut us down to learning from our brothers and sisters. And so he challenges them in chapter 4, verse 18. He says, I know that there are some among you who are so full of themselves, they never listen to anyone, let alone me. He knows that it just shuts them down. He knows that it means that they can't listen, they can't hear. And that, you know, that's a challenge for us. Have you ever had this experience? I know I'm talking to a much younger crowd, but um, you're on the flip side of this. I've, I've read that in some families, when kids become teenagers, there's this thing that happens where suddenly their parents, who were people that they would go to for all sorts of information and wisdom as they were younger, suddenly there's this tipping point that seems to happen when they hit their teens where suddenly mum and dad know nothing. Has that ever happened to anyone here? Hey, there's that honest hand at the back. Um, it's this crazy thing. And like for you know, a number of years, they're just like, wow, I don't know what happened, but mum and dad just lost the plot. They just do not know a thing. And then suddenly they sort of, they get into their 20s and mum and dad suddenly have learnt a lot in the last few years and they become people of knowledge again and wisdom. And it's like, oh, I actually want to have their opinion again. Uh, or it could be a, a situation where you've had, a, you know, friends and you've, um, you've all kind of been on the same page in terms of the things you value, the things that you, the way you want to live, all that kind of stuff. And, and then one of them starts deciding, you know, actually I want to do it different. And they start making some decisions that take them down a whole different path. And because you're concerned about them, because you love them, you actually push back. And you go, well, you know, what about, you know, are you sure that some of those things that you're doing are good for you? And then suddenly this person that used to think that you actually knew some stuff, they are now accusing you of being really narrow-minded and knowing nothing. Has that ever happened? Yeah. And that's just pride, which usually is covering our insecurities. But it shuts us down. You know, it takes great humility to actually accept that God has put the people in my life that I'm living life with, that in the church that I'm in, with the friends that I have, even the family that he's placed me in, because I'm actually going to be able to become the person he has in mind because they are feeding into my life. I don't have this all figured out. 
And so it's a really good question for ourselves to ask, just the way that Paul was challenging, challenging the Corinthians. It's like, what do we do when someone that we know and that we know loves us and is for us and wants the best for us, when they actually come and they say, you know, what about this? What about this thing that you're doing? Or have you thought about this from a different perspective? Or I've been learning this. What do we do? How do we respond to that? Do we just get angry because we don't want to hear what they have to say? Or do we um, get defensive and kind of argue back and just shut it down and we just don't want to hear or think about what it is they're actually saying? Or do we uh, do that classic uh, of where we close our eyes and put our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 la. You know, what was that you were saying? You know, like in actual fact, we don't want to listen at all. That's pride. And it's something that actually gets in the way of us growing. So... Paul doesn't, uh, doesn't encourage us to go there. In fact, he's encouraging us to do the opposite, to cultivate humility so that we can keep growing. And one of the antidotes to uh, arrogance that he's already referred to is recognising that it's all a gift. All of it's a gift. None of, none of us have earned any of what we have or who we are, really. And in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, isn't everything you have and everything you are Sheer gifts of God. You know, if we, if we get to that place of realising, you know, I, did, I didn't actually get to choose the level of intelligence that I have. I didn't choose the gifting and the um, abilities that I have inherent to who I am. I didn't earn my way into relationship with Jesus. We didn't do any of that, and yet we frequently try and take credit for it, which just takes us down the road of, you know, pride and that's not so great he uh paul in chapter one which matt referred to last week he's you know in his really blunt manner uh, reminds them you know part of actually cultivating humility is to kind of remember who it is that we are who where we came from and who we are and not in a way that kind of beats ourselves up and we kind of feel like worms you know like groveling because we're such awful people it's not that it's just keeping a healthy perspective on the reality that we are who we are and God is who he is. And he tells them this in chapter 1, 26 to 31. He says, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, and he chooses these nobodies to exploit, expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet to God. It's all a gift, which in a lot of ways is actually a very freeing thing. We don't have to earn it and we don't have to continue to try and earn this thing. Because one of the really important things that Paul is chiefly concerned with is he wants these guys to grow up. He doesn't want them to stay in this immature state that they're currently stuck in. And the funny thing is, is at the moment, they think they're really smart. They think they're really mature. They think that their education, 
that their position of power that they may have or that they've developed over the years or the leadership role that they have, as well as the freedom they've discovered in faith in Jesus, gives them the right to judge others, to be proud. And he's going, the very fact that you are arguing amongst yourselves, and one of the things that they started doing, which is why he referenced Apollos and himself and Peter, is that um, in the same way that they were used to sort of um, playing different uh, teachers off against each other and philosophers off against each other in their culture, they were doing that in the church. And they were comparing Paul's teaching with Apollos' teaching. Apollos was a, a, a teacher that came out of Egypt, um, and he, he, he did a great job. Paul actually had no problem with him, and vice versa. Um, but what people were doing was like, well, I am Paul's man, and so somehow that made them more special than if you had been taught by Apollos. Whereas other people were going, but Apollos was so much wiser than Paul. Paul was so plainly spoken. You know, and so this whole thing had been going on, and he's just like, guys, the very fact that you're doing that shows your immaturity. And, and yet they were doing it thinking it made them look smart. He points it out to them in uh, chapter 3, 1 to 4. He says this, But for right now, friends, I am completely frustrated by your unspiritual dealings with each other and with God. You are acting like infants in relation to Christ, capable of nothing much more than nursing at the breast. Well, then I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good and what makes you look important, which we still tend to do, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything is going your way? When one of you says, I'm on Paul's side, and another one says, I'm for Apollos, aren't you just being totally infantile? Our lack of maturity is demonstrated when the only time we can be content is when we are getting what we want. Ooh, did that hit? It should sting a little. Because honestly, that's when we get grumpy, is when we don't get what we want. My husband, Matt, years ago, he said to me and the girls, I can't remember what the conversation was, but he was just like, you realise that whenever any of us get angry about anything, usually, pretty much, 100% of the time, it's because we didn't get what we want. And I was like, no, surely not. But then if you think about when you get cross, that's actually it. It's because I'm not getting what I want. And he is telling us that's because of your immaturity. Ow. Yeah, laughing up the back. <laughs> he was right. Ay, ay, ay. So Paul is just like, guys, come on. I want you to grow up. John Wimber, who was the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he used to say this. He's like, I want to grow up before I grow old. And I always kind of just thought, you know, when I was 20, whatever, that I thought that two things just went together, you know, that you just got smarter and wiser the older you got, like the more grey hair and wrinkles seem to bring wisdom or something, I don't know. But it's not the case. There are some really dumb old people who make bad decisions, you know, they do. And it's so funny when you see them at the wedding and they're telling the bride and groom all these like smart things. I'm like, don't listen to them, you know, like bad, bad advice, you know. Um, it, wisdom doesn't come just because we get older. Growing up doesn't just come because we're getting older. We have to pursue that and prioritise it. And there's this tension that happens as we do. As we grow in maturity, uh, and the whole thing of having faith means we have to often hold things in tension 
two things that seem quite different at the same time. So on the one hand, we want to cultivate humility, yeah? But on the other hand, Paul's saying, but you can have confidence because you have all of God available to you. That's huge, isn't it? Like if we actually even begin to try to get our head around that, it's huge. So we have the whole of, the, of God. You know, he talks about the future and the past and the present and the world and, you know, everything. It's all available in God to us. And so on the one hand, that, that gives us confidence to live into life and to sort of embrace everything that God brings to us. But at the same time as that confidence, we're trying to hold humility at the same time. It doesn't puff us up or make us kind of think we're better than we actually are. You know, and uh, there's this great quote from N.T. Wright. He said, it isn't knowing that you've got it all together because you haven't. It's a matter of knowing that somewhere it is all together and that you're part of it. Genuine Christian faith involves learning to be foolish in order to become wise. That's a weird old thing, isn't it? But there you are. And that's, uh, and, and Paul sums it up in, in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, you already have all that you need. You already have more access to God than you can handle. Without bringing either Apollos or me into it, you're sitting on top of the world, at least God's world, and we're right there sitting alongside you. We have it all. But we often just, you know, we're satisfied with a whole lot less than what God has for us. So Paul's like, come on, there's more. Grow into this thing. And so he goes on and starts to unpack, and this is the second thread we're going to tug on, is this whole thing of leadership. And uh, his description and uh, the way that he explains leadership is very different to what, our, what their culture held up as in terms of what leadership was all about and certainly what our culture holds up in terms of what leadership's about. And... And I, I, I had a conversation with someone on Friday night and she, was, she really struggles with this whole thing of leadership because she's seen some examples of church leadership that have actually been really unhelpful. And that's a reality. You know, leaders are fallible. They're not perfect people. And yet God has called people and raises up leaders for particular situations and particular seasons of life. If you think about the different leaders that he raised up through Scripture and throughout world history, you know, I often think, I, I love studying history, which I know makes me sound a little bit geeky, but, um, but I remember, you know, learning about Winston Churchill and he was the man for the moment in terms of who needed to come up against Hitler. You know, Mother Teresa is another leader that God's raised up to be able to demonstrate a way of following him. You know, and so he has, he's all about leadership, but his criteria look quite different in the way that it's worked out. So we can often either be nervous to trust our leaders or to follow our leaders uh, because of things that we've either seen or heard or experienced. But Paul's encouragement, and I believe God's encouragement to us, is that we continue to do so. But we do it with realistic expectations of knowing that they are, they're just people. You know, and Paul does a great job of sort of lowering the bar. We have uh, within human structures of of uh, developing leaderships, we we often we create these hierarchies, don't we? And uh, and there's lots of us here, and then there's just a few of us here telling everyone else what to do. Paul does everything he can to try and flatten that and put us alongside one another. It's just that the leader's job to be obedient means that they lead. 
but it doesn't make them better than the people that they're leading. He, you know, he's basically saying, you know, there is one pedestal and the only person we should put on that is Jesus. No person. If we do that to leaders, and it's really tempting to do, that we, whether we consciously do it or we unconsciously do it, we can often elevate people that we follow and we kind of put them on a pedestal like they are. And I've had people come and say to me, and I, I mean, Matt and I, we tell lots of stories of how munted we are, you know, like, and, the, and all the mistakes that we make, you know, and have done throughout the, our lives thus far, and we're not done probably, you know. But, um, but it's, and they come and they say, well, you know, it's different for you because, you know, you're so much more spiritual. I'm like, have you listened to any of the things I've said, you know, like I'm just the same as you. And, and so don't ever slip into that thing of, of putting someone on a pedestal because if you do, they will disappoint you. Let's just lower the bar, okay? No one can be there except Jesus. It's the only one that you want to emulate, only him. Anyway, that's an aside, but let's just go to this. Let's have a quick look at what Paul would describe in terms of leadership. It's a little bit less glamorous than uh, what the Corinthians were thinking it was and often what we think it is. Chapter 4, verse 9 to 13. It seems to me that God has put us who bear his message on stage in a theatre in which no one wants to buy a ticket. We're something that everyone stands around and stares at like an accident in the street. We are the Messiah's misfits. Isn't that glamorous? Makes you feel good, doesn't it? You might be sure of yourselves, but we live in the midst of frailties and uncertainties. You might be well thought of by others, but we're mostly kicked around. Much of the time we don't have enough to eat. We wear patched and threadbare clothes. We get doors slammed in our faces and we pick up odd jobs anywhere we can to eke out a living. When they call us names, we say, God bless you. When they spread rumours about us, we put in a good word for them. We're treated like garbage, potato peelings from the culture's kitchen. And it's not getting any better. And Paul can say this because of his own experience. It's true. He was imprisoned, he was tortured, he was under house arrest, and he was ultimately martyred for his faith. It didn't get better. Leadership isn't glamorous, and he uses some different examples to help us understand what it actually is. And the first one he uses is, it's all about service. A leader is a servant. And the, and the word that he uses in this next bit of scripture is someone who waits on tables. They, you know, they bring you your food. That's the example he uses in chapter 3, verse 5 to 9. Who do you think Paul is anyway? Or Apollos, for that matter? Servants, both of us. Servants who waited on you as you gradually learned to entrust your lives to our mutual master. We each carried out our servant assignment. I planted the seed, Apollos watered the plants, but God made you grow. It's not the one who plants or the one who waters who's at the center of this process, but God is, who makes everything grow. Planting and watering are menial servants' jobs at minimum wages. What makes them worth doing is the God that we're serving. We happen to, you happen to be God's field in which we're working. And then he goes on in chapter 4, 1 and 2. Don't imagine us leaders to be something that we aren't. We're servants of Christ, not his masters. We're guides into God's most sublime secrets, not security guards posted to protect them. He's aware of his limitations. He's aware of his humanity. 
He's beset by uncertainty and frailty. We all are. But he has a job to do, to serve. He also uses that description of gardening, you know, planting, watering, sowing. The only one that can bring growth and the only one that can actually change anybody is God. So a leader's job, you know, they, we can't actually take credit for a lot, to be honest. It's, it's God that does the stuff that's most transformational. And it's this organic process. And the thing is, is that sometimes we may reap what other people have sown. And so we can't take credit for that either, even though it's exciting to be at that part of the process. Only God brings growth. And the other example he uses it as a builder. So we're a servant, we're a gardener, we're builders. In chapter 3, 9 to 14, or to put it another way, he says, you are God's house. Use the gift, using the gift that God gave me as a good architect, I design blueprints. Apollos is putting up the walls and let each carpenter who comes on the job take care to build on the foundation. Remember, there is only one foundation. And it's the one already laid, Jesus Christ. Take particular care in picking out your building materials. Eventually, there's going to be an inspection. And if you use cheap or inferior materials, you're going to be found out. The inspection will be thorough and vigorous or rigorous. You won't get by with a thing. And if your work passes inspection, fine. But if it doesn't, your part of the building will be torn out and started over. Because here's the thing. Leaders are not answerable to people, ultimately. They're answerable to God. Which, if you are a leader, is like a take a deep breath moment, (laughs) you know, because we are held to account. All of us will be. But, but this actually applies to all of us because we need to realize, just as Paul's describing here, it used to be that the temple of God, which was a building that they had built in Jerusalem, that was the place where God lived. When Jesus came, that all changed. And so now the building that we're talking about is people, people's lives. People is where God dwells. And so as a builder, what we're doing is we're actually building people. And God, you know, is saying to all of us, build well, build wisely. And certainly if you're called to lead, you need to build really smart because you're going to be held to account for what you do. And there's no vandalism allowed. Because we're talking about people and they're incredibly precious to God. You are incredibly precious to God. And there are serious and lasting issues involved. And God takes that really seriously, as should we. And the final example that Paul uses in terms of leadership is as a parent. Which, you know, for many of you, you're like, well, I've seen mum and dad, but I don't really know what that feels like yet. But you will, probably, for most of you. Paul sees his job as being like a spiritual father to these, you know, kind of just fledgling churches, all these young Christians that are running around trying to figure out what that means. And his job, as he sees it, is to build them up. And he fully intends to do everything he can to be able to do that. In chapter 4, 14 to 16, he says, I'm not writing all of this as a neighborhood scold just to make you feel rotten. I'm writing to you as a father. My children, I love you and I want you to grow up well, not spoiled. 
There are a lot of people around who can't wait to tell you what you've done wrong, but there aren't many fathers willing to take the time and the effort to help you to grow up. It was as Jesus helped me proclaim God's message to you that I became your father. I'm not, you know, asking you to do anything I'm not already doing myself. Paul's authority, we're told by N.T. Wright, this is a fantastic quote, his only authority, but it was the most powerful sort, was that of someone who was living and preaching the gospel of Jesus and acting out the commission which Jesus had given him. He didn't need to say much, although he wrote some stuff down. He left that to the puffed up people. His uniform, the life he was living, which he urged them to copy, said all that was necessary. This is super important for all of us, that there's this connect between what we say we value and what we say we believe and how we live. Our example is huge. And Paul is modeling that to these young churches. That's part of why he lived with them for 18 months. And he learned that model from Jesus. Because Jesus did that, didn't he? For three years, he traveled around with his disciples and showed, he taught them not just by what he said, but, but who he was and how he lived day by day by day. They, they lived together, they ate together, they walked for miles together, they did ministry together, they did all this stuff together. That was how he taught them and raised them up. And that's what the apostles then did, that's what Paul has done, and that's how he's been, that's why he can say, I'm not asking anything more of you than I'm willing to live myself. And, his, and the reason that he's doing that, just like any father or mother would do, is they, he wants the best for them. He wants them to be able to access everything God has for them, and for them to become fully who they're meant to be. This other quote is fantastic uh, because it's important for us even in our own context. One of the things that we need to constantly remind ourselves when reading Paul and when thinking about our own Christian living within a hostile world is that no one in Corinth or any of the towns outside of Palestine had ever witnessed someone living the way that Paul lived. No one had seen someone giving of himself generously, living a life of self-sacrifice and refusing to play the power games and prestige games that were the stock and trade. Paul was different and the difference mattered because he was modelling the Christ life. He hadn't just done it in Corinth. This was how he lived and taught everywhere. Leadership basically is influence. All of us influence other people, don't we? We influence our friends, we influence our family, we influence the people we work with. And who we are and how we live our lives is one of the biggest components and possibly the loudest voice that we have in our witness to other people about the reality of Jesus and his life and death and the life that there is for us. And Paul's just saying, I want you to shift your perspective, guys. Shift it from off of some of the things that our culture values. Pursue the things of God. Pursue his wisdom. And in terms of leadership, you know, don't be afraid to follow your leaders. Trust God in that one. And if you're called to leadership, don't hold back just because it's a bit scary looking. Because God will kind of walk you through it. He's very gentle and very kind in the way he does that. So for us today, it's that, it's that moment of kind of stopping and thinking, okay, so what needs to shift in me? What perspective do I feel like God's kind of pushing up against and going, I need you to rethink this. 
I want to show you another way. You know, it could be because we've slipped into this thing of, of um, kind of arrogance or pride that's just shut us down from like learning or listening to anybody else. Or it could be that that's taken us in the direction of being critical and judgmental of everyone around us or other churches and we have no love for them. Or it could be this whole thing of leadership that actually we're recovering from some stuff that has been done in an unhelpful way. Or it might be because God's kind of nudging you going, I've made you for this. And it scares us a bit. But the things that Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth is just as true for us today. So why don't we just stand? Can I get you to jump up, Kieran? And uh, one of the things we love doing at Coast is, uh, is just standing with one another and praying for each other about whatever it is that God's doing in our lives. And uh, this last week or so, I've just been hearing about some different answers to prayer. You know, some of those situations that um, we find ourselves in, whether it's, you know, health stuff that we're dealing with or just things that we're desperate to change in our circumstances, whether it's relational stuff or whether it's, you know, we're looking for a new job or, you know, it's the things that we can't change. It's the stuff only God can do. And, and just in this last week or so, I've just been hearing back from some different people that, that we've been praying with, and, uh, and they're just seeing, they're seeing stuff change. They're seeing circumstances change. They're seeing healing coming to their bodies for stuff that, honestly, no one can change. God, uh, you know, even the doctors couldn't fix. And so, you know, tonight, all of us come with need, don't we? And whether it's this stuff that's kind of been part of this message where we kind of feel like God's nudged us a bit about some stuff and kind of captured our hearts with, yeah, well, you know, there's some stuff that needs to be addressed here. Or whether it's just that you've come and you're like, actually, I am desperate for God to show me what I'm made for. Or I have a circumstance in my life that I don't, I don't know what to do about and I need him to intervene. Whatever it is, really. We want to kind of have the opportunity of being able to respond to him and have people who care about us pray with us about it because God can and does intervene and he does encounter us and he loves doing things for his people. So we're going to just take some time for that. So what we'll do is we'll just stay where we are, but if that's you, we don't do big, long, drawn-out anythings here, all right? So I'm not going to, like, crank up the emotional music or anything to make you feel like, okay, here we go. There's none of that. It's just like, you know, like, because God can come in the midst of, like, getting our groceries, you know, like, and he can do stuff in the supermarket. So he's, he's totally fine with just doing it here without us getting all hyped up or anything, all right? So, um, but if you feel like, you know, I've kind of come with these things that I really, I just want to meet with God. I, I really need him to do something. Or there's something in, you know, what I've said tonight that's kind of triggered off something for you. And you're like, actually, I'd, I'd love some prayer about this. Then we're just going to do it where we are. We don't have to move people who are going to pray for you are going to move. But if you want to respond to that, all I want you to do is just slip your hand up where you are. So this is your moment. Raise them high. Cool. Awesome. Is that a hand? Lovely. Cool. Anyone over here? All right. All right. I don't labor the point. Going. Going. Gone. All right, so what we're going to do is I'm going to ask those people in a minute to pop their hands up again and, so, and we're going to just look around and see where they are and we're going to go and offer to pray for them. For the prayers, here's some guidelines, all right, in terms of how we pray. We're not giving them advice. 
All right, we have wonderful ideas, I know, but actually this is the moment where we actually want God to encounter them. And so we're just going to come alongside them. We're going to introduce ourselves. We're going to ask them what it is that, what do you want God to do for you tonight? Like, why have you popped your hand up? And then we're just going to pray our best prayers, motivated by love. At the very least, if we've prayed for someone, they're going to leave and know that they're loved. Okay, that's the, that's the bottom line. So we're just going to pray our best prayers and ask for God to come and meet them with the thing that, they've, that they need Him, where they need Him. All right? And we're not going to rush because we actually can take time with this. We don't have to do like a 10-second prayer and then we're moving on. Take our time. God takes His time. So, all good? Feeling brave? Awesome. We don't have to have this all figured out, all right? We can just have a crack at it. So pop your hand up, guys. Those of you who had your hand up, pop them up nice and high. I know it's awful, this bit. but So, guys, don't leave them hanging. Can you just move around, see where they are? So there's one gentleman over here, there's two people over here, and there's one person here. Anybody else want to join in the fun? It's not too late. Awesome. Very cool. So what you're going to do is you're going to say hi and you're going to ask them their name and you're going to introduce yourselves and just ask them what it is. What do you want God to do for you tonight? So try that. Do that bit. And if you don't really know how to pray this stuff, go and have a listen. All right. So once you know what it is that they need from God tonight, then just start praying. It's easy for us to just keep talking. But actually, we want to be praying. Ask them if it's okay for you to lay hands on them. Do that in a way that's appropriate. And invite the Holy Spirit to come and see where it takes you.